You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review Our guest today is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a senior scholar at the Mercatus Center. Holding a PhD in economics from the University of Oxford, his latest book is titled How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Mark Koyama. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. It's uh, it's good to be here. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Okay, so I'm an economic historian, and um, yeah, as as I like, uh, as you kindly mentioned, um, I got my PhD at the University of Oxford, and I'm a associate professor at George Mason University, which is um, just outside Washington DC in the US. And my research is mostly focused on economic history. I've worked on a variety of topics in economic history, uh, with a particular focus on institutions. So my first book was actually about the origins of religious freedom in medieval and early modern Europe. And then this book is my second book with uh, Jared Rubin, is really um, a, a take on on how the world became rich, uh, a take on the origins of economic growth, a take on the Industrial Revolution, and how how the economic growth that began and the Industrial Revolution spread to the rest of the world. Okay, so your latest book is titled How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. And I wanted to go over some of the stuff that it covers in our conversation today, starting with where the book starts, um, which is an explanation of how much richer our world is today um, than it was about two centuries ago. So can you tell us um, a bit about that and some of the striking figures you present at the start of the book um, that show just how much better off the world as a whole really is today than it was prior to the 19th century? Yeah, so um, I mean, it's a really important point, and it's one we, we we kind of emphasize very much. We wanted to write a book about, which is to say that uh, past societies were really quite poor relative to anything we're we're, we're used to today. So you get a misleading impression um, if you just think about um, you know, the lifestyle of the elites or kings or queens. Uh, the vast majority of people were living relatively close to subsistence. I mean, there's some variation, some ups and downs, but in general, uh, people in the past were, were poor. That's especially the case when we think about things like access to to healthcare. So um, you know, you could get um, you know a gangrenous wound and die, no matter how rich you were prior to prior, prior to the invention of, of antibiotics uh, and so on. So um, even the richest people in the past were comparatively uh, impoverished compared to us today in terms of access to technologies, in terms of healthcare. Um, so that's the first thing to think about the scale of economic growth. To think that country, rich countries today, like the United States uh, or Western Europe or, or Australia or Canada, are roughly twenty times richer in terms of in per capita terms than than were uh, on our, the average country before eighteen hundred. That's kind of the, the 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 scale of the difference. The other point uh, I think is worth mentioning is that sometimes um, when we think about this topic or topics of development or economic growth, we think about um, a relatively small number of rich countries, and then we think about the rest of the world being being comparatively poor or very poor. And that was true maybe 40, 50 years ago. So 40, 50 years ago, uh, people would use terms like the third world, and they would would think the majority of people were still poor. But since, say, about 1980, actually, there's been economic growth in other parts of the world as well. So even though... um, 
only a relatively small number of countries are quote unquote rich by our standards. A lot of countries are, are, are middle income countries, and even these middle income countries are much richer. The average person in these countries is still much richer than anyone was prior to the industrial revolution. And so um, now four fifths of the world is by historical standards, at least comparatively well off. They're quite a, a, a large distance above subsistence. Uh, that, that is to say, you know, the middle class in China or India uh, are doing a lot better than people were in uh, France in the 18th century. And there's only a comparatively small number of countries uh, where there's really endemic uh, uh, terrible poverty, and that poverty hasn't budged in the last 30 years. So that's still a tragedy, but it, it doesn't obscure the overall picture, which is one which is actually quite positive. All right. And I think it's important to put that in context here as well, because, I mean, if, if you just compare how much uh, a person in France in the 18th century, I mean, I mean, the income that they had as compared to somebody um, even middle class in the developing world today, um, there's like you, I, I think, touched on. Um, there's a big difference in terms of the stuff that they have access to. Right. So even uh, a king or queen um, in, in medieval Europe didn't have access to nearly the same sort of healthcare or, you know, resources or whatever um, that we all have um, that the, the vast majority of the world has access to today. So I think it, it, it makes a lot of sense to put that in, in context as well, um, that it's not just, um, you know, a difference in how much they make. It's, it's also a big difference in terms of the stuff they have access to. Right. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's a longstanding question or problem in economic growth, whereas it's, whereby it's difficult to measure living standards when you're getting radically new technologies coming online. So it, it's a bit of a problem for all of our comparisons across time, that how do you price, say, the internet? You know, like, how much would people have paid to have access to, you know, instant costless information in the past? Presumably quite a lot. But, you know, the internet is either free or it's priced into things like broadband, um, so it's difficult for us to measure how much better off we are, but undoubtedly it's a it's a huge difference. Uh, just to take a personal example. Um, I have uh, type one diabetes, so I'm actually dependent on insulin. And had I been born before the invention and commercialization of insulin, then I would have died. You know, uh, as soon as within a couple of years of being diagnosed. So um, those types of technologies, uh, are, you know, they're worth more. Um, than almost anything, and to the extent that we've we've been lucky to have those, it actually uh, the actual measured statistics we have understate the gains from economic development and and particularly scientific innovation. Okay, so heading into part one of the book, you go over five theories for how the world became rich from geography to institutions to culture to reproductive trends and finally to colonization. So can you give us a, a overview of each of these theories that you went over and which, if any of these, um, you found to be the more more or most important um, in a country becoming rich? Yeah, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to provide a survey of, of kind of the body of research, which particularly the research of the last 20, 30 years, and the factors which other scholars have, have said are important. So it's an important part of what we're doing in the book is, is kind of bringing together a lot of research and then, um, you know, um, summarizing it in a concise, readable, digestible form. And also then, um, you know, testing it and investigating how far we can go with these arguments. So the idea that geography matters in some important way um, it's been made by many, many scholars in the past. Um, and it's kind of indisputable that, you know, geography and, uh, and the cost of doing business, uh, access to roads or sea lanes or rivers, these types of things clearly matter. Okay? So but they clearly affect 
um, um, the cost of trade, and through that, they, they affect things like the returns to investment. And some scholars, though, have put particular emphasis on geography as a causal factor behind the divergence or the different outcomes we observe and behind the rise of Western Europe and the relative, why other parts of the world, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, have fallen behind relatively. So in particular, Jared Diamond, who many of your listeners may know, wrote a fantastic book called Guns, Germs and Steel in the late 1990s, where he kind of gave a geographical explanation for why it was that the Spanish were able to colonize the, um, the, the Americas and defeat the Incas and the Aztecs are not vice versa. And um, Diamond's argument was all about, in some sense, the luck of geography, the, the fact that some parts of the world happen to have different animals and different plants, and that gave rise to agriculture emerging in, say, the Middle East before it emerged anywhere else. And that gave uh, Eurasia a head start and it gave them more crops and it gave them other advantages which would later lead to the economic divergence that we observe. And other people have also said geography is important. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs is uh, another extremely prominent of top development economist who wrote a very um, very famous book um, and advocated for uh, the big so-called big push, the idea that government intervention could get countries going. But he was really prominent in, in pointing out um, how geography shapes the disease environment. And as, as well as trade costs, but particularly he emphasized malaria. And so malaria is um, endemic in much of sub-Saharan Africa, and it has really, a, really a big economic burden on, on people in most in that part of the world. And so um, these are all relevant factors. So they all constrain the kind of choices people had in the past. And in particular, we think they work through. Uh, um, through the cost of trade, as I mentioned, and how the cost of trade then affects the division of labor, which is kind of, you know, a classic idea from Adam Smith. And that um, affects the incentive people have to specialize, and that then um, um, limits productivity growth. And so geography does matter. Even today, you know, being on the sea, being coastal, allows you to export, say, you know, um, cheap garments. So if you think about Bangladesh, which is an economic success story of the last 20 years, Bangladesh is able to export, you know, cheap cotton, textile goods, T-shirts, and so on to the rest of the world, in part because of its coastal location. If you're located in um, the middle of sub-Saharan Africa, you don't have access to the coast, then it's much harder for you to export goods which are uh, low in value, but high in volume. Um, but we also discuss how uh, geography can, to a degree, be overcome. Um, so we discuss kind of how societies can make investments in infrastructure, and that can overcome the tyranny of geography to some, some degree. And so um, that was an important part of explaining why economic development occurs in some parts of the world and, and when it occurs, when, when these investments in geography, in transportation technology are made. And we also talk about um, um, the, the idea that um, geography can't explain, well, the trouble geography has explaining the timing of economic development. So if if we say that geography matters, clearly it can help explain why economic growth might be more likely to start in, say, a country or a region of the world blessed by geography that's good for trade and commerce, like Western Europe, say, and why it might be an impediment in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. But that argument doesn't tell us much about the timing, like why does growth begin around 1800 and not earlier or not later? Um, so we also talk about how um, we might try and explain that with things like investment in infrastructure or um, theories of increasing returns, and also things like climate change, which um, which affect um, 
affect affect climate that then affects the cost of geography so climate change in the past made some parts of the world more or less productive and that can then have a, have a subsequent effect on uh, on economic development and geography can work through institutions which is another point we we kind of talk about um, in that chapter yeah so this this idea of institutions sounds sounds sort of like in uh, the Adam Smith idea to me right um the the um, the preservation or, you know, uh, um, sort of a strict rule of law in, in a country um, and, and sort of those cultural ideas as well, um, you know, the, the sorts of aspects um, that, that each culture prizes or values more um, and, and how that contributes to their their wealth. So can you give us an overview of sort of that next next bit that you explored? Uh, yeah, here? so that's, that's exactly right. It's the next, next two chapters. Um, so um, the geography story, as I just mentioned, it has a shortcoming whereby uh, it doesn't, do, it's hard to explain differences in, in the timing. So institutions, which are um, often defined as kind of man-made rules of a game, um, uh, Douglas North is particularly uh, famous for, for that definition. Uh, institutions potentially can explain the divergence of timing. And, and uh, two scholars who made that argument, uh, particularly are Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson, in criticizing geography and pushing for an institutional story, they said institutions can really explain um, so-called reversals in fortune. So they can explain why it is that some part of the world might have been rich in the past, but then it becomes poorer and vice versa. So uh, particularly they explain, you know, the, 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 the shift whereby the richer part of the Americas in pre-colonial times was in um, the uh, Central America and South America, not in North America, but you get a complete transformation by um, 1900. And they, they attribute that to institutions. Um, so institutions um, can refer to a variety of things, but the most important ones we think are the rule of law, as you mentioned. Uh, so that, that matters insofar as it determines the incentives that individuals in the economy are facing. And so property rights are one example of that. And Adam Smith, as you mentioned, Said that you know if, if you if your property rights insecure then you you're going to be unlikely to invest or you're, you're going to be more likely to hide your money under the ground and invest it in a project. So security of property rights is, is one factor. Um, how the legal system works um, uh, that that also matters. Um, and political institutions and these are tied together in in, in kind of complex ways. So um, um, there's a literature about the benefits of democracy. These benefits are somewhat contested because we do have examples of relatively autocratic societies also growing fast. But certainly democracy is one way of institutionalizing the relatively uh, egalitarian system. And that seems to be quite complementary with a system of, um, of secure property rights and, uh, and, and institutions which support markets. So that's certainly one important ingredient in, in economic and uh, in, in getting economic development started. Um, now, there, there are examples where you can maybe get some growth without some of these institutions, but long-lasting, sustained growth seems to seems to require them. Um, the other thing you mentioned was culture, and so that's the, the subject of a fourth chapter. And there's a debate about um, culture because it clearly interacts with institutions. So one of the criticisms of institutions as an explanation is that sometimes some societies might have very similar, say, written constitutions, but the way they, these, these constitutions um, actually function in a society uh, is quite different. And why might that be? Well, we have to make reference to something like culture, something like social norms, rules of behavior, um, uh, rules of thumb that people use to, to kind of get by. That's what we mean by culture. And that 
that can interact with institutions in important ways. And so, you know, um, things like corruption, corruption in the country is partly a function of institutions, partly a function of, you know, what's the legal punishment for corruption, but it's also a function of our social norms. Is it bad to offer bribes to a public official, or is it just something you do to get by? Uh, that that reflects our cultural values to some some degree. Similarly, things like entrepreneurship uh, reflects culture. Things like um, savings rates potentially reflect culture. Um, so there's a discussion about about this. Um, we we review this discussion and we we kind of point out that it's um, important not to make um, a trite or, or simplistic arguments about about cultural values because they, they're difficult to be falsified they're difficult to be tested empirically so one example we give is this idea that confucian culture was a spur to economic growth in china um, we point out that in the early part of the 20th century uh, scholars would say the reason china was growing slowly or not growing rapidly was confucian culture because confucian culture held back innovation but in the late 20th century, people attribute Chinese growth to its Confucian culture because Confucianism encourages saving and investment and encourages the acquisition of human capital. So that argument is difficult to falsify. Um, so we, we point out kind of what we think are more robust findings in the literature showing that culture can, can work, often through institutions, actually. So if we look, think about examples like the role that is uh, that Islam might play in explaining why the Middle East hasn't grown as much. We think, uh, building on the work of Timur Quran, that the large part of the effect of Islam works through Islamic legal institutions, which had a negative impact on economic growth in the pre-modern period. Similarly, if you think about the divide between uh, North and South Italy, a lot of that also works through historical institutions, which affect things like trust and social capital. Okay, um, so the second part um, is titled Why Some Parts of the World Became Rich First, Why Other Parts Followed, and Why Some Are Not There Yet. So you start with looking at Northwestern Europe, which was the first region to become sort of quote unquote rich. Um, so I think just intuitively, North Northwestern Europe is the region we tend to associate with the industrial, scientific, and agricultural revolution, which brought their wealth, which brought about their wealth. So in your findings, what was it that led to Northwestern Europe's um, early success? I mean, I would assume it's a combination of many factors, but there are certainly things that led this region to flourish before everywhere else on Earth, right? Yeah, so it's a great point. Um, so yeah, what we should think about uh, as a background condition is that there had been episodes of economic growth, um, but just not sustained ones in in other parts of the world and other times, um, and they, they petered out. So we didn't last. So we talk about very briefly, but we mentioned things like Renaissance Italy. So think about Italy in the 14th century, 15th century, Florence, 13th century, Florence, Venice, they, they seem pretty rich. They're pretty commercial. They're trade hubs. They've got manufacturing, um, but they don't reach a point where that growth becomes self-sustaining. So for various reasons, which we can discuss, that part of the world doesn't grow, stagnates, and eventually it becomes poorer. So uh, per capita incomes in, in parts of Italy in 1850 are lower than they were in 1400. Or 1450. Um, other examples would be China during the Song Dynasty, which was probably the high point of pre-industrial China's economic development, and maybe classical uh, Greece or the high point of the Roman Empire. So there have been pre previous episodes of, of like promising growth, which had, had, had ended uh, in stagnation, but petered out um, for different reasons, but related reasons. Um, now, Northwestern Europe is the first part of the world 
where this initial uh, effervescence, to use Jack Goldstone's term, uh, doesn't peter out and it continues into sustained economic growth. And I think the core reason why the economic development in, in, in Northwestern Europe doesn't peter out is ultimately about innovation. But um, even though innovation is, been, is going to be the critical thing, and we're going to focus on that, uh, particularly in chapters eight and nine, there are a lot of background conditions in Northwestern Europe which seem to be playing a role, important role, in making it a candidate for something like an industrial revolution. And so um, just to mention some of them briefly, at this point in time, so roughly by, say, um, 1600 or, or 1700, depending on what date you want to pick, um, Northwestern Europe was already fairly commercialized by pre-industrial standards. These were um, market economies, although obviously not everybody was participating in the market and things like the coinage was scarce. These are market economies. They had um, uh, institutions which supported trade. They, they didn't have great institutions by our standards. None of them are democracies. None of them protect rights of minorities. And even things like property rights or rule of law are kind of sketchy by, by modern standards. But they're quote unquote good enough to support a fairly um, um, high level of trade and uh, commerce. Um, political fragmentation seems to be um, an important uh, ingredient here. It's going to feed into integration, into innovation. So um, Europe is divided into many states. Um, that matters because it means the decision of a single autocratic ruler, like a Roman emperor or Chinese emperor, can't um, completely push an economy or, or, or the economy of all of Europe off, of course. Um, so commerce is entrenched. Com um, in terms of culture, they're, you know, commercial uh, values supporting commerce to some degree, at least, at least in some parts of, of Europe. And um, what else would I, I should emphasize is the, 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 um, the human, human capital is, is fairly high as well by at least by pre-industrial standards, both as measured by things like literacy. So we're talking about a period where, you know, the printing press had been invented and the Reformation had occurred. So literacy is fairly high, but also other types of skills seem to have been quite highly developed. So this, this was a prosperous economy by pre-modern standards. And so it's a good kind of, it has a lot of the background conditions which might make um, something like industrialization possible. Um, but the key thing which really... Um, is really going to matter is innovation. And so innovation has two aspects. So there's the scientific revolution, which is um, going to be very important. And there's also just tinkering, just improving the types of machines you've got. And that tinkering and kind of uh, learning by doing doesn't actually necessarily require scientific innovation, but eventually you're going to need a combination of both tinkering and improving and scientific development to really get the industrial revolution, particularly to, to get um, sustained innovation past the first, uh, what's known as the first industrial revolution. So something like the spinning jenny, which is going to be a core innovation of the industrial revolution, that doesn't actually require science. Um, it, it, in some sense, it's just it's just it's just a question of manufacturing now and tinkering by people who were um, who were very much involved. Um, in, 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 in the process of improving uh, the efficiency of, of spinning wheels in cotton manufacturing. So uh, Hargreaves, uh, who's the inventor of, of the spinning jenny, is, is a, he works, you know, he, he begins as a worker 
uh, of a bottom of uh, of the workforce working his way up. And so it's it's not really science there, but it's it's, it's manufacturing now. Um, but science is going to be crucial as well for things like the steam engine and the science in which is important in the industrial revolution builds on developments which were occurring across Europe in the 17th century. So that's in the, which is the scientific revolution. So um, to try and recap. What I think uh, Jared and I would emphasize is that there are a lot of background conditions which make Northwest Europe a candidate for the industri- for industrial revolution. But what really um, explains the industrial revolution is the, sign- the innovative breakthroughs of the really the early to mid to late 18th century, and those innovative breakthroughs rest on on two pillars. One is a, a workforce. Uh, which England has, which is relatively high levels of human capital, which is very skilled, and they're able to um, tinker and improve machinery. And also, the other key condition is the scientific revolution. And of course, the scientific revolution, you know, itself draws on many causes and many roots, and it's complicated to explain. But I think those are the two distinguishing uh, factors which help um, explain the Industrial Revolution in England. All right. Um, Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Foyama. Great. Yeah, it's been a a pleasure to talk. So I hope your listeners enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.